No attitude, no bitterness, no regret, no enemies. Lisa Loeb is a music world outlier. This is the National Podcast of Texas, a production of Texas Monthly, the national magazine. Welcome, I'm Andy Langer. Back in May, when the Austin City Limits Music Festival announced its lineup, Paul McCartney and Metallica were at the top of the bill. Lisa Loeb, she was in small print down at the bottom. Almost immediately, a fan popped up a Facebook event titled, Give Lisa Loeb the Crowd She Deserves. The invite read, Lisa Loeb is a national treasure. What did she do to deserve this? Was she too legendary, too iconic? The truth? is there wasn't a conspiracy at all. Performers on the kids' stage, Austin Kitty Limits, are always listed last on the lineup, and Loeb's ACL appearance was indeed for the children. In fact, she won a Grammy earlier this year for her latest kids' album, Feel What You Feel. For Loeb, kids' music is a supplemental offshoot, not unlike acting and voiceover work, another way to sustain a career in a very different music industry than she started out in. A Dallas native, Loeb was the first pop musician to have a number one single while not signed to a recording contract. And for almost a quarter century since, she's been instantly recognizable and busy. With a regular recording and touring career, she's made five children's albums and two illustrated children's books with music. Inspired by her own love of summer camp in Texas, she also started the Camp Lisa Foundation, which sends underserved kids to summer camp. This sprawling conversation with Lisa Loeb was recorded Monday morning in our Austin studio, a day after her Austin City Limits appearance and the day of a proper show for adults at Austin Scoot Inn. Welcome. Thank you. Let's start with yesterday's performance on the Austin Kitty Limits stage. There were some children corralled in the front. They're nice enough to give the small children a unobstructed view of the stage. Many of those children had cell phones as it winds up. <laughs> I know. And when we say corralled, it's not like somebody gathered them and, and like pushed them in their like cat- cattle. It was more like it was their special. It was like the press pass area. It was a special photographer's area. But yes, they were special photographers. I was so shocked to see. And we're not talking about 10-year-old kids. We're talking about 6-year-old kids. They had cell phones. And the, and on top it was unbelievable. I know my kids, I have a 6 and an 8-year-old. They would like to have cell phones at all time. They don't own cell phones. Sometimes they snatch them. Um and, and take pictures of things. But they were also doing that thing you see at grown-up concerts where people turn around right in front of the stage and take a selfie while you're playing of themselves with you. So I had to have an, a couple of little brief conversations with them. It, it's funny because in a, in a festival style like that where there are just so many people and they're so far away and there's other music playing from other stages and loud bass you can hear. Sometimes um, as a performer I have to do a show that's a little more broad with less sort of nuance and details which is sort of the fun of doing a show sometimes. But um, it was funny to be able to, to be having these like nuanced conversations with kids that hopefully parents would hear also that it's nice to be present at a concert. I I understand taking a couple shots, but enough. Put the phones away. Yeah, I mean, once you've documented that you're there, yeah, that maybe you even have terrific seats, mm-hmm. as they did, that's when you put the phones away. Exactly, and then it's just a distraction. So um, I asked them to find their purses, which they didn't have purses. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, I, I don't know what the deal was, but I'm just, I, I was surprised that there were so many cell phones that it's so omnipresent. It needs to, uh, we need to, you know, we need to sort of like, what is that called? Where you reel it in. 
I'm doing my fishing fishing pole hand motions. One of the striking things about your children's records in total are that they are not overtly children's records. I mean, there are moments that are. Yeah. But you're coming at this from a songwriter perspective and just sort of dialing it down. Is that is I, that the right description? I don't know. You know, it varies. When I first started making kids' records, I think I was mostly inspired by grown-up content like grown up just we didn't call it content back then it was just called TV <laughs> it was like TV and records um, albums the things that I listened to um, the things that were specifically for kids that I enjoyed a lot were either real classics like Burl Lives which is just classic storytelling um, or they were things that were made for kids like Free to Be You and Me by Marlo Thomas or uh, Really Rosie by Carol King but in those kind of projects, they used real musicians, real storytellers. You know, in Free to Be You and Me, it was Alan Alda and Carol Channing and, uh, you know, really famous current people telling stories and singing songs about values and things that were important, but written in a way that you might have seen them on Saturday Night Live or on a, a regular grown-up variety show. And the same with Free to Be You and Me. I mean, sorry, the same with uh, Really Rosie, which was Carol King's record for kids. She took Maury Sendak's books like who wrote things like where the wild things are which are dark in themselves they have a lot of nuance and and grown-up topics and a lot of darkness as well as humor and she put them to music using her real band real production like if you didn't listen carefully you would think it was another just any old carol king record so i take inspiration from that and then like the silliness of the grown-up things like the carol burnett show and the donnie and marie shows and fernwood tonight and the you know, old TV talk shows that we used to watch as kids, probably not necessarily, they were, I don't know if we were supposed to be watching them, but um, they had a lot of silliness and heart and humor and thought, and that's what I like doing with kids' records. And so those are not things I normally do with my grown-up records. I, I don't try to have a lot of humor in my grown-up records. I, I try to stay away from it. But I've learned from making kids' records that it's all about storytelling and doing things in a way that people can understand what you're saying. And as I've gone along and have kids myself also, I realize that sometimes it's it's good to focus on what types of songs, what kind of messages uh, y you want to um, you want to bring to the kids. Not in a hit you over the head kind of way, but just you know when I read a good kid's story, there's some kind of message or moral I get from it, and and I want to try to do that with some of the kids' music as well. I say this as a non-parent, but it would seem that given video games and all of the things you can do on a phone or in front of a TV and the defunding of music classes in public yeah. education that what you're doing is more important than ever. Well, also, I don't want to be, you know, prim and proper, but there's a, a certain innocence and sort of that, that I also a, a refreshed freshness that I want to bring. Um, that attitude, we have it with our kids, but you know, they play some video games and watch TV and things like that. We don't keep them away from modern culture, but there was sort of a slower time when you sat and you dug in the dirt and you kind of looked for bugs and ladybugs or, um, you know, now there's such a, a big culture of celebrity and hugeness and fastness and bigness and brightness that, I, and again, some of the values in the songs, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm moralizing, but, but part of it is just to remind people, grown-ups and kids, you know, there's songs that we have about just, you know, what might happen in your life in day-to-day. -day. You know, you might step on some acorns. You might, you know, uh, suck on a peppermint. 
you know, these things which actually in the moment, they, they really can mean something. They don't have to have, you know, you don't have to be winning an award for it or, you know, be on TV or captured on camera. You can just be in your life. And that's really special and it's really amazing. And um, hopefully we can, me and my collaborators, we can, uh, my collaborators and, and I can pass that just longing to be in that slower place sometimes. I think that's an important place to be. They give the same physical Grammy Award to Album of the Year as they do Children's Album of the Year. Yes, and you have just, one of those for this. I do. It was not televised on the big screen, just on the internet screen. I guess that's I did. The I got a Grammy. It was so exciting. It's on my mantelpiece, um, in in the the room with the one of the fireplace rooms, and it's up there, and it's it's heavy and it's bronzy and. Um, there are so many awards that, get, that are given out that are not the t- I think like 11 are given on TV, something like that. And there's, you know, 40 some odd other awards that are given out or more. I don't know the exact number. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's really cool to have a Grammy. It reminds me of, again, being a kid and watching the Grammys on TV and seeing like Fleetwood Mac get up there with the long like earrings that have feathers on them. And, um, you know, at that time, things were a little different, too, because we didn't have the Internet. So this was another moment where we could actually see the people that we listened to and see what they look like and see how they walk. You know, you, you, we didn't get to do that when we were little. We, you might see a photograph here and there in a magazine or a newspaper, but it was odd that you would actually get to see them as moving, talking people. Um, but it was a really special thing back then when I'd see different people win awards. And uh, now I, I appreciate it for all those things, for... for um, you know, when you win a Grammy, people are more aware of what you're doing. So it's really nice for people to know, yeah, there's this music being made out there that you can hear and you might enjoy. And some of it is mine. And that's really exciting for me to be recognized by my peers is really uh, exciting. You know, a lot of us are out there. I've been doing this for so many years. And you you, you can kind of get this glazed over look sometimes just like when, when you tell people what you're working on. They're like, oh, what are you working on? You tell them. And, and sometimes I feel like those people are like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm working on a thing. You know, it's almost like it doesn't exist unless they really see it out there on TV or in a magazine. Um, So a Grammy is the kind of thing that says, yes, you actually made a record. And then also, you know, I'm excited because the record that won the Grammy was my record, Feel What You Feel, which is sort of what we've been talking about. It's a record that just sounds like a grown-up record. There's a couple songs that, like a song called Wiggle, which are meant to help kids get up and move, which are fun to play live. They're not necessarily the ones I would naturally like to make. But there's a lot of storytelling, and I hope, I think it will inspire kids and parents to treat each other with respect, to treat people in their community with respect, especially nowadays with what's going on in the world. You know, I have a song called Say Hello, and it's it's not about being best friends with somebody that you meet on the street. It's just seeing people and giving them a little head nod or a, a hi, hello. You know, I know people in Texas do that a lot because they are seemingly very friendly people as I know, because I grew up here, but... Um, less so in L.A. Less so in L.A. or New York. I mean, L.A., people are pretty much very groovy, and they'll talk about anything in the grocery store line. But, you know, sometimes people give you a little look in certain cities when you say hello to them on the street. But I think just starting with those basic things, like saying hello to each other, knowing what your feelings are. The record's called Feel What You Feel, and I, I sing with Craig Robinson, a, a whole like encyclopedias worth of feelings that you might have. You need to be able to know how you feel and express yourself in a way that's respectful to others and to yourself. And um, so there's a lot of topics that we cover on the on the record, some more secretly than others, about hopefully to help kids understand they're in a safe space. Hopefully they know that they have people they can rely on. Maybe it's their parents or somebody else in their life. You know, that small moments like learning how to tie your shoes is a really big deal and you should celebrate that. And um, you know, you don't get an award for it, but just recognize it. Or 
your small moments in your life. And, and so that's what that record is about. So I'm glad that that won the Grammy. You were talking about how different the Grammy Awards are than they used to be, and there's fewer on TV. The whole industry is dramatically different than the one you stepped foot in 25 years ago. Are you constantly hit over the head with how different things are? I really am. I mean, again, I was a huge music fan growing up. I, I took Rolling Stone and, you know, all these different magazines. And if there was an article that happened to be published in a newspaper about a band, I like I'd cut it out and save it. And I would, I, I would try to go interview bands and which my friends and I actually did, but I was really obsessed with music and listening to music and getting new records and stealing my parents' records and the radio and live concerts. And I felt like there was less out there. You would, you know, it was less out there and it was sort of more iconic. Now there's so much out there and it goes so quickly. And there's pros and cons, you know, as a musician, if I were able to do what you can do now, back then when I started and when I was a kid writing music, you could, I don't have to, you know, back then I would make a recording of my song and a cassette tape and then I would try to figure out how to get two tape recorders or even have a boombox that had two recorders and make copies of them and then mail them off to my friends and people who wanted copies. Even in high school, now you can just, you know, quickly send make your music available to everybody in the world. You would have been a good YouTube star. Oh, it would have been. Oh, it would have been amazing. Maybe. You know, we'll see. You know, you, that's the other thing. You, it's like a lottery right now. You never know what's gonna hit and what's not. I think musicians we have responsibilities to just make things still that are true to us, which hasn't changed from back in the olden days when I got signed. It was still really important not to, you know, to to try to reflect on what other professional people were telling you at the record company and suggestions they were making. But it was really important as an artist to stick with your guns and really follow your heart and do what you know is the right thing to do. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest thing that's that's an issue for a lot of professional musicians is the monetization. You know, making money off of being a musician. It's it's weird that we used to sell records and make a living, and now you can't sell records. You know, it's it's just, it's it's hard to have to take so much focus away from making music. It's always been important to market your music and to figure out how to get it out there. That's, you know, how I know you. I used to be like, hey, Andy, can you play this on the radio? Hey, Andy, can we do an interview? Hey, Andy. Back in the day before I was signed. Um, so the marketing and the, you know, getting out, getting yourself out there is a big deal, even with the internet. But then just being able to make a living doing that, that's a little bit different and you can get, your focus can get distracted from just making things. The flip side of that is that when it's working, the old music business model, there was such a laser focus on whatever that thing was mm -hmm. that when you have a hit, a hit the size of Stay, that becomes part of culture at large. Yeah. And it's indelible. Yeah. And it lasts forever, in it, a sense. It does. And I actually really appreciate that. I'm so lucky that I was on the sort of the tail end of that music industry. I had a, song Stay was a big hit, and I had a couple of other hits that were lesser but still very present in the world. And to have that gateway song where people, it's it's part of them. You know, they couldn't help it. It was always on the radio. It, it, you know, and again, it was a little strange to be in the same world as artists I wouldn't consider myself peers with at the time, you know, like Mariah Carey and R. Kelly and people like that. Little by little, peers of mine, you know, became were on the radio too, like Duncan Sheik and Sean Colvin and people who are sort of singer-songwriters who had pop songs. Um, but I, I really appreciate having a song like that. I really appreciate, you know, I know, I, I personally know and have seen other musicians who've had hits that kind of 
are angry at those hits because those are the songs that people really know. And what about all the other albums? You know, we've all made so many records. Um, it's funny, sometimes I go out and play concerts and people say, so what have you been, they're so happy to be at the concert because they're the hugest fan and they say, so what have you been doing over the last 20 years? I'm like, well, I've been putting out a record like every other year, <laughs> amongst other things. Um, so it, that can be frustrating, but luckily by watching you know, behind the music or hearing stories from other popular musicians, I've really definitely been able to look at the positive side of having such a big hit. It's 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 pretty amazing. And and also, you know, these are all really nice humans coming up to me to tell me their story or to come to my show even just to hear that one song. I understand that. I have that relationship with other musicians with the one song that might have, you know, meant something to me. Was there a time where you were bitter about stay? Um I I think the bitterness that I had came more from my positioning sort of in the market when it came out. I think there were a couple photographs that came out. Like there was one in Interview Magazine where I was wearing this really cool Betsy Johnson um, crocheted vest. And the style of the photograph, um, and I am a petite person, but there was something about the style of the photograph and my size and the way that the person wrote the piece that was, you know, I was this waif, which is not very serious. It was sort of like brushing me off and as somebody who um, I also recently I was going through some stuff in my parents house and I found old press of mine and some of the um, the things that some of the writers would write were just so rude you know it was like you're not a serious musician you're a pop artist and you know it sounds like you're just reading right out of your diary well first of all I was so against writing things for my own personal life that I was like that is not even from my diary I made that up like why would I talk about my real life now I actually find value in talking about your real life at the time I was just like what I had been to you know Berkeley summer school I had studied music my entire life being a musician a craftsman and a songwriter was so important to me I'm like this isn't fair like how come that other musician can be a genius and I'm just like this sort of pop tart like that's not fair that was my bitterness um but little by little, I, I realize you have to write your press releases a little differently so people <laughs> say things differently about you. Well, I was I mean, like, oh, it's in the press release that they're a, a musical genius. It's not that they're, you know, they are a great songwriter, but, uh, you know, some of that comes through, I think, your sort of positioning uh, and your presentation. I mean, that really hasn't changed since the right. 90s where people at large, for whatever reason, yeah. sexism, have yeah. trouble taking women yeah, as seriously. seriously initially as men. Yeah. And Lilith Fair, I mean, you played that. That oh, was yeah, yeah. that was something early on that tried to change that. Right. But now we look at festival bills where where women are yeah. are, are just lower than men. I don't on, know what on that the bill. is. Because, and, you know, you take someone like here at ACL, Janelle Monet, she's like amazing. She still is kind of like alternative. I don't know if her songs per se have crossed over into that pop world that Phoenix has or some of the other bands who might be higher on the the list. So that's part of it. I think, you know, whoever's got the most hit songs, they get to be higher on the list. And I don't know why some songs are hit songs and why they're not. Back in the olden days, it did have something to do with also who's promoting a song. You know, when my song Stay came out, I wasn't with a label. So that was special to me also. I'm like an independent artist and people happen to like the song and it sort of caught on like wildfire. After that, I was with a label and they put certain amount, certain amount of money into certain songs to push them more. You know, they're the they get a little bit more attention I think sometimes still certain songs will break through so I don't know what that is I also think 
you know, being a having a pop song, a song that becomes popular, that also is a, an area where, where people automatically are not taken seriously. I do it myself. I see, hear certain songs on the radio, and I'm shocked when I actually hear a whole album by that band. I'm like, oh, they're actually really great musicians. And so I think, you know, we were in the MTV generation where you appear on TV and people think, oh, you're out of nowhere and you're just a pop singer, um, which, again... Now with experience, that is even a big feat. Like people who are pop singers, they often have amazing voices. They might not always write their music. They've got great charisma. They're dancing and doing all these things. So I don't know. I think we we easily put labels on things and sort of poo-poo things and say, oh, that's not really great. That's not important. Um, and yeah, there need to be more women out there making music. I feel like there there are more women making music now. But I don't know. Things are still changing. Also, I will say, as a feminist and as a mom, it's hard to do everything. It's really hard to do everything. There's something, and my husband's amazing. He hangs out and helps take care of the kids and do all the things, you know, when I'm out of town. But a lot of it still, you know, comes back to the mom. The mom's in charge, and it's hard to be out on the road when your kids are at home. And it's also hard to bring kids on the road. So you end up with, with guys who've got a little bit more physical freedom to go here and there and promote themselves and do their career and play music. That might be part of it. How dramatic were those first couple of years for it, somebody who came from a pretty basic... Like a regular... Regular life. Like on TV, 1950s regular life. Yeah, I will say, it's funny, again, like I've been going through boxes of my old things in Dallas, and I find journals uh, from seventh grade and notes from teachers who say, you know, keep up the creative work. There's something in the seventh grade journal or even younger where I say, I want to be an actor. Uh, You know, when I grow up, I want to be an actor or something creative. And I was studying acting a lot and doing a lot of dance and musical theater and music growing up and writing music. The amazing thing is it actually happened. You know, it's, it's, I, I will say, again, I was looking through college things as well that were in my, the boxes of, the, of my things. And there are fan letters from people in college that people used to leave. My friend Liz Mitchell and I, we had a group called Liz and Lisa. So we got pretty popular on campus. It felt pretty, it felt pretty real. Like we were actually doing this. And we were even going to New York City and playing at the places that you play when you're starting out, like the Bitter End and CBGBs. So I felt like the career was going. What shocks me is to think back to being a fan and going to get an autograph at a sound warehouse of a band coming to town and then you know actually doing it, it, it it's more of that contrast of parents who raised you to be a doctor or a lawyer or have a, like a regular job and then to actually not have a regular job that's that's just unbelievable um that that this is actually my job i mean it feels normal and i'm around a lot of other like-minded people and when i think about it that way i'm like well it totally makes sense of course this is what i've always done but it's it's sort of an unusual job to actually get to do for your life. It's kind of like, you know, being a quarterback or like one of those things that barely anybody gets to do. I really appreciate it. You know, even being backstage at ACL, it just felt normal. Like, oh, yeah, this is like my high school. You know, I'm just like, do-do-do, walking to the backstage. And then we had some friends come backstage also who aren't professional musicians. And you forget. You're like, oh, this is like a really cool big deal. Like the creative people are back here and they're hanging out and eating together and having conversations. And I, I don't know. It, it's... I don't want to take the specialness out of it because it was really special to me when I was a kid looking up at musicians and thinking they're writing songs. You know, they're, I enjoy watching them and they're wearing these costumes and they're on stage like Elton John when I saw him in the late 70s. Or as I got older, you know, certain songs I would listen to on my headphones for my record player and they just went straight to my heart. And like, 
it, it's it's you have to sort of compartmentalize when you realize, whoa, I'm one of the people making those records that people are listening to or watching on stage. Because as a human, I'm just do 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 taking out my notebook or my computer and my guitar and writing a song. It's not it's not that magic, which it actually really is. Can you isolate the ways Dallas influenced you in ways that are still here today? Well, Dallas was a great place in the 80s to be alternative because Dallas was very conservative and it still is pretty conservative but it was the Reagan eras the Reagan era so my friends and I we were really like alternative we dressed alternatively when we weren't wearing our school uniforms we listened to alternative music we went to go see the you know art films there was something to fight against uh alternative thinking and beliefs and not what the mainstream was you know we weren't the Republicans we were the Democrats we cared about the people and so I think that was a great thing to have something to fight against as an artist is always very inspir- inspirational. Also because it was Dallas, um, there was like uh, certain stores you could go to to buy alternative clothes and records and go see bands and you found your like-minded people and it was sort of a niche group. It wasn't a huge group. If you Now that I'm in Los Angeles and when I lived in New York, sort of everybody's like that. You're not on the outside. You're really sort of part of the, the mainstream creative culture. In Dallas, that was really sort of offbeat. So that was, I think that I bring still today. I still sometimes, uh, I, I think that, that having that to fight against makes you think more about what are you writing? What, what kind of songs are you writing? What kind of style do you have? And what, what does it sound like, you know? Also in Dallas, there were a lot of really popular musicians like Joe King Carrasco. And, you know, one of the pretenders had a clothing store in Dallas. And uh, we had... The Judys from Houston who were popular and you know there were a handful of people who had really broken out and you know big people like Steve Miller and Boss Gags and um, you know they were from Dallas but I think um, it made being a musician more it was possibly attainable Edie Brickell was just breaking out when I went to college yeah you left just before the Deep Ellum thing I knew her because my best friend Adrian mother was a teacher at Arts Magnet and Edie was one of her students and so we used to hang out with her in, a- in Adrian's kitchen and go to the movie theater where she was working or go to Soundware. I feel like she worked at Soundware House too and we'd buy records from her. So we knew it was like maybe possible, slightly attainable, but mostly unattainable, which made me, I think, work harder to be a musician because I felt like it was so out of reach. Um, but also being from Dallas and being from Texas in general, I will say there's... Ann Richards is a great example. Just this dry sense of humor and directness. And someone like Ann Richards was such a great role model, too, because she, she and also going to my all-girls school at Hockaday, even though, yes, I was still of the era where we might have been lear- learning how to, like, cross our legs properly on stage, we also were being to- – it was a serious prep school. I mean, there was just so much education and so much information, both uh, academic as well as in the arts, serious, deep arts education and theater and music and I feel like having all of that and and knowing like it's important for you to follow your dreams and do what you want to do and anything is possible don't anyone get in your way like that was really important and having that dry sense of humor and reality like somebody like Ann Richards had just having that groomed into you growing up uh that no-nonsense attitude that really helps you in business and I think you fall more into that class with the Lyle Lovitz and the Sean Colvins. Yeah, yeah. And and that then the outlaw thing necessarily. Mm. Because people yeah, take different outlaw, parts no. of the Texas <laughs> thing. I cannot get arrested. I, I literally cannot get arrested. I will be driving 100 miles per hour and a policeman will pull me over and he'll give me a warning. I cannot get arrested. Which is a good thing too, I'm sure. Also, a weird thing that um, 
that I, I think about a lot and I've heard about a lot from other people. It's one of the reasons I got signed to Amazon um, to make records with the Amazon record company is Griff uh, Morris, who's one of the guys who signed me at, not signed me, but did a deal with me at Amazon to put out my records. He said, you know what made me interested in you is you, um, you, you came back and you said hello and you were really polite and you were courteous. And I really appreciated that. That really meant a lot to me, to coming, especially coming from a musician. And that's something that's kind of like pounded into you in Dallas, like especially at an all-girls school. You need to be courteous and say hello and thank you and please. And it's unusual that, that out of all the things I had to learn and great, good grades I made and tests I passed, that courtesy out of the four cornerstones of Hockaday, like <laughs> that has gotten me further and opened more doors for me than than a lot of what I know or what I can do. It's 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 an unusual thing. But again, I think it comes back to hopefully not, you know, a false thing, but just being courtesy, courte- courteous, interested in others, like respectful of others. And that's something that actually came from growing up in Dallas as well. Something that occurred to me yesterday that I've never thought of with you, they've offered Billy Gibbons many times big money to shave the beard. <laughs> Has there been offers for corrective surgery? Oh. <laughs> uh, Has somebody tried no. to offer you money to take the glasses away? I have not been offered money. I've had many photographers say, now take the glasses off. This will be a great shot. And every once in a while I do. I, I remember for the Dallas Morning News I did a shot where like my glasses are in the forefront and I'm through the lenses in the background. Um, you know, it, 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 that's funny. It, at first, that used to, again, like talking about glasses, that used to make me so crazy. I'm like, why aren't we talking about my chord changes and you know the music and why are we talking about my glasses? But there are things that you kind of hook onto, and even musicians that I love, like Elton John, Billy Gibbons, you know Elvis Costello, glasses, clothes, hair, costumes, whatever. I still love what they do, but it's fun to recognize them and say, oh, there he is. He's, that's the guy with the beard and the and the beanie. That's Billy Gibbons, you know. Like you just know, and so I appreciate it more now, and I don't take offense. It's it's just I get it, I get it. Um, I've actually taken advantage of it and started an eyewear line, but um, but I also later as I go along, I also don't take off my glasses because I realize that's how people recognize me. Even in college, like I remember taking a dance class, and I was so embarrassed to have to do the final dance performance out in the middle of the green and inside of the whole campus. Anyone could come see you. I actually took off my glasses that day. Uh, I think I had a couple pairs of contacts that I always try to have for 3D movies or auditions. Um, (laughs) But nobody recognized me. I would walk by friends. They wouldn't even say hello to me because I didn't have my glasses on, even in college. Yeah, I mean, that is a strange phenomenon. For instance, for a Gibbons, where he is much more recognizable than other musicians at his same level oh, yeah. of success because there's the beard there. It's the, there it is. Or like if Roy Orbison were here with his glasses, you know, you just, you recognize people that way. At Dwight Yoakam, his hat, like without his hat, you're like, where where Dwight Yoakam go? But you still see it as more blessing than curse. Oh, yeah, because, again, it's it's the kind of thing that nowadays you'd have to hire somebody for ten or $15,000 a month to come up with some clever thing so that someone might recognize you. Instead, I'm like, oh, I gotta, I need to be able to see today. I'll put my glasses on. And, and it's a style that I found through being a person who wears glasses, and you find the pair that you think looks the nicest, and then you wear them. And um, so, yeah, it's it's... It's not done for promotion, but it sure does help. You know, it's, it doesn't hurt. 
before the Grammy thing, you had this high-profile moment during the Super Bowl where your voice is the voice of the Alfa Romeo commercials. And that's a completely different side hustle, but one that sort of makes a lot of sense. Oh, I love doing voiceovers. You know, again, I was talking about acting earlier. I was always, I was, even though I was a very shy child, um, I think until around age 15 when I decided I can't be shy anymore, um, and my friends and I started interviewing bands, it was basically like I would almost count to three, like, okay, here we go. I'm not going to be shy. But before that, I was shy, but I still loved performing. I loved, I would randomly volunteer to stand up and when like the circus world wanted to, wanted somebody to come up on stage and be with them on stage. I weirdly was raising my hand, even though I was so shy as a kid, my mother thought I, I might have a hearing problem because I wasn't really talking a lot. Um, but they I just, just have always saying been saying anything you wanted to hear. Yeah, I was like, I don't have anything to say. No, but I was just shy. I want, I was sort of keep to myself. I have a very shy streak in me, but, um, but I did a lot of acting and acting, studying all through college and everything, and that was one of the things I wanted to do. And of course, I've spent a ton of time in a studio. So early on, um, I had an opportunity to sing a Hallmark commercial, which I hesitantly did and then realized I really enjoyed it. And I think I was more worried, like, what are people gonna think about this? This is like selling out. But I actually like Hallmark cards, and I really enjoyed singing in the studio, and I thought, Eh. But, you know, that was a sign of things to come because now, you know, any old musician has a, sh- a tennis shoe line and, a, you know, th- they have to have some kind of commercial marketing partnership or they're nobody, you know, like that's a good thing. It's not selling out anymore. I remember I, I said no to a, to a huge company for doing a song for their commercial, which in retrospect was silly. Um, but anyway, I enjoy being in the studio. I love using my voice to do voiceovers, uh, to do animation. I love working in the collaborative. It's very collaborative. You're working with with studio, you know, engineers and directors, and sometimes even somebody who's from the corporate side giving you these really hard to decipher um, direction that they're thinking about. Uh, you know, they're trying to tell you to do certain things that might not be exactly what they mean. Um, but it's really fun to do it, and it's really easy work. Uh, you know, it involves about a hundred auditions for every job you get. But I enjoy the auditions even. See, that's the difference between me and you because. If somebody was on the other side of that glass, yeah, telling me to say it this much differently, but couldn't describe how much differently, <laughs> and I've been in those situations. Yeah. There's nothing more frustrating. It's frustrating. You look at the engineer who you've become friends with, and say, I, and say, pause it for a second. If you hear every once in a while, I say to the engineer, if you hear direction coming through, because they work with a lot of different people too. If you hear direction coming through, and you know exactly what they're actually trying to say, because I would like to do what they want me to do. And you hear it, you're, you can decipher it in a little bit of a different way, let me know. There's some direction, directors who are amazing and they know exactly what to tell you. But I love that. I love puzzles and I love um, spatial relation puzzles and I love crossword puzzles and unscrambling games and, and cryptograms. And being in the studio sometimes and working in, in it with a director can be like that. I love that puzzle part of the collaboration. Whether it's writing songs or working in the studio to, to do a voiceover, I really love it. I assume you've been a Jeopardy answer before? I, I'm sure I have, but I'm not good at Jeopardy for some reason. My brother's good at Jeopardy. Well, we know you did a New York Times crossword puzzle, but mm-hmm. I'm just, I, that made me think, I wonder yeah. if she's been a Jeopardy answer. I haven't. I, I, I think I probably have. That That's fun, too. I mean, I do appreciate, um, you know, getting the phone call, you're an answer in a crossword puzzle, or I saw you on Jeopardy, or I heard your song at CVS. Like, it's fun to have, um, you know, people tell me those stories. And I bet a lot of those come from Dallas. They come from Dallas. They come, Well, now with social media, they can come from the moon. They come from all over the place. But you've got family sort of spread all over the state. I do, yeah. Who 
show up at shows who were really proud of you. I mean, in a yes. in a way that I mean, it it seems like a supportive lobe. Very supportive Texas. lobe. Yes. It, and uh, I even meet cousins, like I was in Austin recently, uh, about a year, or within the last year, doing something at Dell's uh, Jewish Community Center, where there's a bunch of different synagogues. I was part of a, rededic- a dedication of a new Torah there. And um, part of it was a meet and greet. Part of my responsibility being there was playing music, but also there was a meet and greet. And I literally, it felt like just being amongst friends. Like, people were coming up to me that, yes, indeed, they were actually related to me. You know, we actually were related. So, um, I do. You know, I think my folks were a little concerned with me being a musician, as now, as a parent, I understand. I want my kids to be happy, but I also want them to be able to support themselves. And music is not... Uh, at least at the time, music wasn't one of the more reliable careers. Now nothing's really reliable. Um, so that, you know, people with regular jobs, that's not necessarily a solid fact. Um, but yeah, my family has been really supportive, and that, that also makes it more fun to be a musician when um, you have people out there reminding you that it is exciting, that, that, wow, that was really cool that you got to go on that cruise and play music, or you got to go to such and such town and play a concert or meet another musician or whatever that putting things in context with the supportive family um is great at the end of the day it all comes back down to that connection between audience and performer on stage i mean that's what all this is working up to particularly because records don't sell anymore yeah so that's the the payoff here what does that feel like if you're the one leading that i i actually that's another thing i think um having done this for so many years I'm enjoying it more than I have ever enjoyed it in my life. Um, I I tend to tell a lot of stories and talk on stage. And I'm never sure. I have some ideas of what I might want to talk about, but I'm never sure where things are going to lead. And early on, there were certain friends and family of mine who thought who would tell me, "You're talking too much. You need to just play the music." Now I just do what I want to do. I I'm aware of the structure of the set, and um, depending on if it's an outdoor show, which again needs to be a little bit more broad in its content, or indoors in a seated theater where you can actually sort of almost be having a conversation with the audience. That's what makes it special. That what's I remember um, Dweezil Zappa used to tell me his dad, Frank Zappa, never played the same show. He would never play the same solo. And I used to feel bad because I'm like, oh, I don't really play guitar solos, and there are a number of songs that I want to play that might be the same from show to show. I want it to be different for each show, and I try to mix it up. But I realized my storytelling is what mixes it up. And I do meet people after the show. I usually sign autographs and meet hundreds of people, and they seem to enjoy it. And I feel like it's really fun. You know, it's fun to be on stage and playing music and people listening, and they tell me their stories after the show. And I meet people everywhere I go, in airplanes and grocery stores. And with social media, I meet a lot of people. And it suits me well, and I really enjoy that. It's a little hard to strategize going on the road, again, having young children at home, because I also don't want to be away from home very much. I feel like as a mom, I'm away from home too much, but as a musician, I'm not away from home nearly enough. So it's an interesting balance, and I'm always aware of it. And but you don't I, want to take them on the road. I, I don't. Right now, it's 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 just their bedtime is before I'm playing concerts. They I'm very routine is important. I think being at their schools, being there for special events, again the small moments. You know, it's important to be there for sock donation day and career day and the day they're supposed to turn their homework in on Monday. Um, those are important moments. I don't want to take those away. And so luckily I have a great support system and my husband. So we're trying to keep things moving well. But I do. I love playing concerts now. I almost want to try to figure out a way to, to turn L.A. into its own um, 
what's it called? You know that place that everybody goes to play? Branson. Uh, Branson. I want it to be where I can just play every concert in L.A. It's kind of like, you know, in Texas, I could just do an entire Texas tour over and over and over again. Just keep playing concerts. You need to open your own theater in L.A. Yeah, that's That's a how idea. they do it in Branson oh, is yeah, you brand true. out your own theater. Hmm. I could do that. Or with the traffic in L.A., I literally could play a different place every day and, and just like go through it every every month or so. Is the PTA where you're not Lisa Loeb musician? Is that a great equalizer? Uh, you know, I'm still trying to figure that out. My kids have been in school for a while, and because I'm in Los Angeles, it's probably similar to Austin. There are a lot of entertainment people, and um, it, it's kind of, I, I live in a great place. I'm not going to say exactly where in Los Angeles, but I live in a great place where there are a number of people who are who are well-known for what they do, and we all just go to the grocery store and go to the sports store and buy the cleats for our kids and and we can talk about what we do in a way that feels safe and other people understand what we're talking about you know if there's a little complaint here and there we're allowed to do that even though other people would say oh you're just lucky to be doing what you're doing but it's nice to have like-minded peers um it's also again appreciated when a parent says I just have to tell you I'm a really big fan and they kind of get it out of the way and then we're also parents at the same time and I'm the same way with other parents there might be an actor or a musician that I'm a big fan of and I can say, oh my gosh, I'm a really big fan. I love that album or that TV show you did. And it can coexist with, oh, what did you pack for your son for lunch today? So it's, it's a, sort of a great balance. That's one of the reasons I do like living in Los Angeles is that is it can still feel like a special thing that we all do. But we can also be a normal parent at the grocery store. Yet when you go back, likely in baggage claim is TMZ? Oh, oh, that does happen sometimes coming out of restaurants. There's TMZ. And that's just no fun, right? Well, it's it's no fun, and, and it's twofold because as a person who's a little bit neurotic too, you you some and at the farmers market, you're like, wow, that person sure has a big camera. Oh, geez, they're taking a picture of me with my kids right now wearing these like terrible shorts at the farmers market. <laughs> you know, you, you and uh, so it, it's a weird balance. But but the neurotic part also for someone like TMZ, they're always asking you questions, so you. You know, I don't mind saying something, but then after the fact, you're like, oh, I should have said something funny or I should have said something more interesting. Maybe if I had said something really crazy, they would have, like, broadcast it everywhere. Or you say something really crazy and they broadcast it everywhere. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I then mean, you're, you're ruined. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's sort of one step away from a career-ending moment. Yes, there is. But again, I'm from Dallas, so I'm poised. I'm ready. I did speech contests growing up. Like, we're poised. We're ready to say something appropriate. Wait, what are speech contests? We used to have speech contests where you where you would write a speech about something, and you'd have to get up in front of your class. Oh, okay, and your so speech. speech making, not speech making, like making a speech, organizing your thoughts very quickly. That's a Texas thing, I think. Think about all those Texas people you know who can organize their thoughts really quickly and then spit something out that just sounds just you know. I'm not doing it right now, <laughs> but you know, like it's completely well formed. They just say it, and they just came up with it off the bat. And they can do it while taking a chair out for a yes. woman in a restaurant. Exactly. I think that's like a Texas thing, just, just being able to be very organized and, and say something. I see it in my relatives a lot. Despite all that's going on in the world, you seem hopeful. I am Which is a hard hopeful. thing to be at this point. Yes. I am, I am a realist. I had a record actually called The Way It Really Is because I realized that 
you have to be able to look at the things the way that they really are in order to change them, in order to understand where you are in the world. I read all the articles and I hear all the speeches about, uh, you know, climate change and 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 uh, every night I'm going to bed and telling my husband, oh my gosh, there was a tsunami. Oh my gosh, there was a bunch of people killed here. Oh my gosh, there's these kids who are being held on the border. It's terrible what's going on out there. It's terrible what's going on in the government. It's exciting that some of those things are are creating change and creating people with more passion and trying to, all of us trying to figure out what we can do next to change things, to make things better, to make people more human, humanity more prevalent, um, to listen to each other better. I feel like it's really important to have hope. You were on a reality show once. I, I did. I produced a reality show of my was, own. That was the dating one, The right? dating one. I had a show before called Dweezil and Lisa, which was a Food Network show. And that was supposed to be um, sort of edutainment. It was... It was uh, Dweezil and I were really interested in cooking, eating, restaurants. We had an opportunity to eat in great restaurants all over the world. And we wanted people to be in on our experience. Um, and you which, were ahead of your time in that. Yeah, and we wanted people... And, and so there was music and entertainment and... It, it was a little bit like a reality show, only it was highly produced. That being said, even though we were producers, the production company would, would turn in edits of what we had done to Food Network before we had approved it. So there were moments that did look like old school reality show where I'm holding up an egg and saying, what's this, an egg? You know, some stupid thing like that, which I never would have let, that, that wasn't the point of what we were trying to create. So when I did another reality show, an actual reality show, um, I sort of put it through the ringer before we actually uh, presented the show. We we did a, a couple of demos, and I wanted to make sure that the stories were being told in the appropriate tone, the real stories. So when so I had a show with E. We worked with a great production company who normally does um, documentaries, serious documentaries, and I worked with them. And we we had all these different producers, and we all worked together. And before anything was given to E. I would sit and look at all the edits. I would sit in the editing booth with the editor and say, this will work, that won't work, that's not, because you can change anything. You can change people's reactions, you can make it look all kinds of ways. Even while we were shooting things, producers suggest things like, drink this martini, have this conversation with this guy. And I would say, I'm not having that conversation with that guy. Don't make that guy try to kiss me. I'm not drinking that drink. We're not gonna shoot from that angle. We would never be at a bar like this. You know, I was kind of a pain in the ass, I heard. But that was because I wanted to make sure we told our story in a certain way. And I think in the end, the tone came across well. I'm not sure if I would do another reality show because it takes a lot of work, maybe as a sidekick or as a producer. But I, but I, the great thing that happened was I wanted to do the reality show because it was under the umbrella of telling a story. And that's even what's important to me as a musician, telling my story and hearing other people's stories. People still connect with me and talk to me about their relationships and trying to find a boyfriend and how to balance career and personal life. It's something that I'm really, truly interested in. And it continues to connect me in that way with other people. Even though you didn't have a catchy catchphrase like you're fired. <laughs> you know, I'm not president <laughs> yet. No, I did not have that. Oh, Lord. I, it fascinates me, the whole reality show connection to what's going on and coming from a world where you could control all those outcomes or outcomes were controlled yeah. for you 
and then the we connection just, to now. It is. And, and the thing with reality and celebrity is there could be people completely unqualified for whatever job they're doing. And through TV and the magic of film and TV and other people possibly writing what you're saying and editing together what you're saying or doing, telling you what to say, um, people can seem any way they want. People can seem smart. People can seem in charge. People can seem like they're great singers when it's completely manufactured in a studio. Um, and it's scary how that can go to the top ranks of our, you know, our country. A minute ago, we were hopeful. I'm still hopeful because <laughs> you know what? Hopefully, people will see that and know that this is just not a great direction to 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 be in. I mean, I know they are. I I have, you know, maybe I live in a bubble. I'm in Los Angeles. All my Facebook friends, other than one and a half of them, are are angry and hopeful and fighting and upset and have their feelings and respectfully explaining them and having intellectual conversations you know on Facebook these long paragraphs they're sharing articles that they've written that they've read people are spokespeople on TV politicians people who start new organizations artists musicians so people are out there and we're all working together and trying to teach our kids um, again things like respect does part of you understand why Taylor Swift stayed out of things for so long? Oh, I completely understand why people stay out of things. You know, even I'm a musician myself, and, and for myself, part of me as a musician, I'm like, I don't want to... My job as a musician is not to be uh, telling you how to vote. Um, as a human, I want to share with my friends on my personal... I don't have a personal Twitter account. It's my professional Twitter account. I do have to speak out sometimes, definitely, though, when I think things are really wrong. Um, and again, I try to do things that are more on the active front, like do political benefits that are important to me, spread information that I think is true, write songs that are at the heart of what the problem might be in the first place. I keep coming, coming back to respect, but you know, having your feelings, respecting other people, being able to listen, those are things that you can teach at a young age that hopefully will help people make good choices as they grow up. That ironically feel like protest songs now. I know, right? Like, you must say hello and respect others. And uh, yeah, I, I never was good at writing a protest song. I always thought that was too sort of didactic and too, you know, I'm telling you what to think. And I do think it's important to share and to spread good values when possible. Um, but they're human values. You know, it's not I'm not trying to force anyone to be a certain way. On that note, thank you. Thank you. You can follow Lisa Loeb on Twitter at Lisa Loeb. We're always available at TexasMonthly.com. And while you're there, get everything you need to know about our ninth annual Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest, which is now Barbecue Fest Weekend. The top 50 barbecue joints in Texas have all been invited. And on the site, you can view the new weekend schedule, which includes our first ever Franklin and Friends kickoff event. And if you like what you heard here, consider subscribing to the National Podcast of Texas on Apple, Google, SoundCloud, or Spreaker, sharing it on social media, or maybe even leaving a recommendation on one of those services. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next week. You've been listening to the National Podcast of Texas, a production of Texas Monthly, the national magazine.